1: Hi, I'm Sarthak and I welcome you to one more episode of All Things Policy. In the last few weeks, the 5th National Family Health Survey report was released. In this episode, we are going to discuss some of the interesting findings of the 5th round of National Family Health Survey and also some of the policy implications of the same. For this episode, I am joined by my colleague Suman. Hi Suman, welcome to All Things Policy.
0: Hi Sarthak. Welcome. Please yeah, welcome once here. again. Yeah. So before we
1: discuss or before we go into the findings, I just want to talk about what uh, is this National Family Health Survey and how this is relevant. Few weeks back, Prana and I were discussing the data related to poverty. Right. And at that point of time, we realized or we discussed that there are different ways by which poverty can be estimated. And one is usually the monetary method. But the other is the method by which you get to know about different kind of deprivations people have. And according to the deprivations, how you can tailor your policies. Right. And at that point of time, we talked about the multidimensional poverty index and how the multidimensional poverty index takes data from National Family Health Survey which was conducted in 2015-16. That was the fourth round, right? So at that point of time, also we mentioned some of these things. So this National Family Health Survey, what it does is it collects data, demographic data, health data, nutritional data, socioeconomic status data. And on the basis of that, you get an idea where people lag behind, right? Whether they are having sufficient kind of nutrition, whether, they are, whether their health status is optimal, whether they have access to insurance, health insurance, all these kind of data you get from uh, the National Family Health Survey. On top of that, this is kind of one of the largest kind of surveys in India, right? The N- NFHS-5, which was uh, which covers the duration of 2009-2021, it surveyed around 6.4 lakh households. It is much larger than the National Sample Survey or any other national survey. So, since the sample size is also large, we can say that, okay, it kind of has a very correct depiction or it has a legitimate depiction of how people live their lives in india so suman you have also gone through some of the findings is there anything interesting that you came across
0: yeah lots of interesting uh, data points some of which we already knew some of it we wanted to be corroborated by some exact numbers or something okay. like that but by and large it seems to be uh, i mean it's throwing light on the uh, situation as is the first most important or interesting thing i found was about the population trends or total fertility rate. Now, this topic has been, you know, it sparks a lot of interest. It sparks a lot of controversy in a lot of uh, places. Therefore, this number is watched very closely. Okay. From the 60s, uh, from the early uh, years of the Republic, population explosion is was always, uh, you know, met it out to be like such a big problem. We have to get it under control. And we were okay with, I mean, some people were also okay with coercion as a method to bring the fertility rate under control. But what we have seen through the years is that without coercion too, but with other policies in place, we can bring this total fertility rate lower. What we have seen, I mean, the most interesting part of this here is that again, the total fertility rate is reducing. So the total fertility rate refers to the replacement. I mean, number of births versus number of deaths. The replacement rate, as such, it has reduced from 2.2 to 2.0. Again, there are regional variations. There is an urban-rural, urban versus rural uh, difference, etc. So the urban is below the replace is well below the replacement rate, which means that there are other policy implications for us. The urban total fertility rate is 1.6 versus the rural, which is 2.1. Again, regional variations are there. States like Bihar, Meghalaya, Uttar Pradesh, Jharkhand and Manipur are states that have a fertility rate, which is above the 2.1 replacement level of fertility rate, which is considered the replacement of fertility. So these five states still have some distance to go in bringing the fertility rate down to the replacement level. Whereas there are other states which have achieved this in good time, yeah. So policy implications as such is that if the replacement rate falls below, I mean, if the fertility rate falls below the replacement rate, which means you will have an aging population. So I mean, we have to design policies to take care of this, which means healthcare, old age living, and any of those kind of policies need to come to the forefront in of. Quick as quickly as possible. What we have also seen is why has the TFR reduced? You know, what are possible reasons why and what can we do better? It's very clear that with increase in education and access to healthcare services, contraception, etc., the TFR is falling. Okay, So as women are uh, gaining more education, with every year of schooling that women get, the fertility rate actually falls down. Okay, so... The importance of education can never be overstated here. So we have to focus on women's education, on education overall, specifically in women's education. And yeah, so our policies need to be you know, geared towards those kind of you know, factors or those kind of areas. The one worrying thing that I have seen or I noticed in this is that teenage childbearing age or teenage childbearing has not i mean we have not made much progress it was 8% i mean it was 8% in 2015 16 nfhs it is now reduced by just 1 percentage to 7% so this is a little worry. and i think we need to focus a little bit more on that part of the population trend message
1: yeah so suman uh, i just want to go back to some of the things that you mentioned the policy implications now as you mentioned that the Fertility rates have declined. Many of the regions in India, many of the states in India, urban areas there, the fertility rate is below the replacement rates, right? And so to some extent, it highlights that maybe when it comes to population, we are moving in the right direction. But thing is, many states and many political parties sometimes talk about different kinds of coercive methods even now, right? So this thing, might not make sense because, as you mentioned, access to education, access to health services, these have been the primary factors which have reduced the fertility rates. So maybe the focus should be on this rather than the different kinds of coercive mechanisms which are suggested time and again.
0: Yes, yes, definitely.
1: Yeah. Apart from that, as you mentioned, that there are certain states like Bihar, Uttar Pradesh, right? These are states where the fertility rates are still high. And these also happen to be the states which have large population, right? So fertility rate is high. And population is large, while in other places, the fertility rates are going down, there will be aging of population, right? So this kind of gives you an idea how the labor or the movement of labor is going to happen in future. Migration, yeah. So migration policies, I mean, by the way, there are different barriers to internal migration as well. Though the constitution says that everyone can move from one place to another, but there are different kinds of barriers to migration at the present. And in India, most of the migration is for very shorter distances, right? Mostly it is rural to rural migration. Mostly it will be within the districts or within the states, right? But as you can see, Some of the states which have large population, they also have very high fertility rates. In future, we might have to design our migration policies. The states have to design the migration policies or at least they have to be open to migrants because they might have shortage of labor and then there are some other states which might have excess labor.
0: Yes, while it is a political flashpoint maybe, I think the demand supply will point to a certain direction and we should let that flow go through peacefully. But it is always a contentious topic.
1: Yeah, so I was looking apart from the contentious topic, I was also looking at the health and nutrition data. And this is something which was kind of interesting, but it's something which is not on the expected lines. So what the data points out is 89% of children in the formative ages 6 to 23 months in India, they do not receive a minimum acceptable diet. So large number of children, a huge proportion of children are not getting the right kind of diet. And here, Two states, the states of UP and Gujarat, they have the highest proportion of children not getting minimum acceptable diet. So this was kind of surprising to me. At one is the number, and again the kind, the states, right? Two states which are yeah. kind of different from one another, right? Uh, Gujarat, uh, whose GDP per capita is kind of high, UP might not be, but they both of them have like the highest number, highest proportion of children not getting acceptable minimum acceptable diet. Apart from this, uh, yeah, Gujarat
0: stands out as a. Because yeah. it's always considered amongst the more developed states. So this comes as a surprise.
1: Yes. On top of that, if you look at the data for stunting as well as
0: uh,
1: wasting, right, underweight children, that has increased. Right. So as per the NFHS 4 data, 19.7 children were 19.7% of children were below the age of five were stunted. As per the NFHS five data, it is 23.4%. Similarly, when it comes to underweight children, the percentage has increased from 16.1% to 19.1%. Right, so the, these are things uh, which are I mean, which should not have happened or I don't know what is the reason why this is happening and what is also interesting is there is large proportion of children who are wasted stranded. and at the same time you also have obesity rates increasing right so yeah. the obesity rates between the two surveys right they, it has also increased both among men and women
0: yeah that is kind of a paradox
1: right? <laughs> yeah exactly so given these kind of things right health and nutrition a large part of these things, will be dependent on the state governments, how they're delivering different kind of services. So, yeah, so the policies should be such that, I mean, the state capacity should be more, uh, the states have a better understanding of these problems, maybe. So solutions might be at the local levels, but at the union level also, there should be some acceptable baseline or some form of benchmark. And according to that, the different states can be possibly given incentives, right? Okay, if you're able to reach this particular benchmark, uh, we should do this or to reach this particular benchmark, the union can provide some support to the states.
0: True. I think and also each state should come up with their policies, keeping in mind, you know, cropping patterns, their uh, diversity in what is found in each place, etc. Right? So that that plays an important role in nutrition, also, in nutrition especially, and also helps to bring down obesity. Yeah.
1: So before we go to the next part, let's have a small break. Yeah. So we are back. So Suman, what are some of the findings when it comes to gender?
0: Yeah, it, Gender is an important topic, uh, you know, to find the right balance for everything else. So looking at the NFHS data, there are some, you know, of course, there is something to cheer about, but there are some data points that throw some questions with respect to the data itself. So firstly, the sex ratio shows that there are 1,020 females for every 1,000 males in the country. Now, this ratio was 991, 2,000 in NFHS 4 and 1,000 in NFHS 3. Now, the NFHS is one way of collecting data. The census collects data in a different way. Now, the census has recorded country's sex ratio as 940. Now, 940-2020, that's a big number. So, we are, I mean, clearly the census is underreporting or, you know. NFHS
1: is a, also overestimating. That might overestimating. Also be
0: Overestimating, yeah, maybe. You know, different reasons why, because NFHS is just a survey and the sampling could involve only families, etc. So, you know, it would be different maybe in when you do a census versus when you do this survey. So that is one data point that we need to keep in mind. But overall, I mean, if we have to take one message out, I think it is that the sex ratio is improving. But it doesn't mean that we stop doing, you know, whatever we are doing to improve the sex ratio. I think there has to be concerted effort still because gender parity is still far. I mean, we are a huge distance away from. Another data point that I mean, instead of looking just at the sex ratio, if you look at the sex ratio at birth, which refers to the number of boys born alive per 100 girls born alive. That is, you know, in, in the sex ratio at birth at the fifth of NFHS, it also takes into consideration children who die before they, they age or before they attain the age of six. So which means that this is a more representative or more realistic number. Now, according to this, the uh, SRB or the sex ratio at birth has gone up from 919 in 2015-16 to 929 in 2019-20. Okay. Now, I mean, this is a good improvement. Again, you will see that there is a significant rise in this in the rural areas, whereas in the towns and cities, uh, it has been very marginal. Okay. Now, why has, I mean, in towns and cities, why should uh, the sex ratio not be better? It points to, you know, a probable attribution to, you know, because there is an availability of sex determination methods, greater availability in towns and cities, there are more female or feticide or infanticide that happens. So this is something that needs to be investigated. We can't point out for sure, but I think we need to take this with a slight pinch of salt. But the overall message seems to be that we are getting closer to the desired ratio or such the other part of I mean there are other few other so you know qualitative feedback or pointers that come a large number of I mean you would think that with increase in education with communication and you know exposure etc you would think that uh, tolerance to domestic violence tolerance to inequities will be much lower now but what this survey shows is that, a large number of Indians, including people in states like Tamil Nadu, which are generally considered progressive, are very tolerant towards you know physical violence against women. They think it's permissible. They think it's okay. Nearly a third of women between 18 and 49 have experienced physical violence. And only 14% of those experiencing this kind of sexual physical violence actually reported to the authorities. So our statistics on violence itself, maybe under conflict and under. It is also, I mean, you know, we also read, uh, we've also seen elsewhere in the light of, you know, criminalizing or in the light of the marital rape judgment, etc. Where violence in, within the institution of marriage is somewhat okay. But what we see from data is that majority of violence happens within families by the husband to the wife. So when that is, when it is such an important or when it's such a stark finding of this thing, I'm really surprised that the marital rape judgment came out the way it did. Yeah, that is a very sobering, I mean, oh, very disturbing trend as such from this.
1: Yeah, so when, and apart from these dynamics, right, this, the, Nash, the survey also talks about access to different kinds of services. Right. For example, access to water facilities, access to drinking water facilities, sanitation facilities. So uh, here also, uh, we find uh, some interesting trend and uh, some trends which are actually diverging uh, from some of the previous studies. For example, when it comes to uh, sanitation, right? Uh, in 2019... India had declared that all villages, gram panchayats, district states, union territories in India, they had declared that they have become open defecation free. This is, I'm talking about 2019. But if you look at the NFHS data, uh, like it's slightly different. According to this NFHS 5 data, 19% of households in India do not have any toilet facilities. And in the past, there have been some other surveys as well the National Sample Survey, then you have a National Annual Rural Sanitation Survey, right? According to the National Annual Rural Sanitation Survey, open uh, defecation-free status of India is, I mean, they're saying that 93.3% of households in India have access to toilets. So again, we're moving in the direction of uh, being open defecation-free. But if you look at the NSSO data, it is less than that, right? According to NSSO, it is 71.3% households, right? So whatever claims have been made in the past, And if you look at the NFHS data, there is massive amount of divergence and definitely we are not open defecation free. And same thing applies when it comes to access to drinking water facility. And here one thing I want to point out, they have talked about, uh, they have used certain uh, terms here, access to improved drinking water resource, access to improved sanitation facility. And they're saying that 99% of urban households have access to improved drinking water source. 95% of households have access to improved uh, drinking water source. Now, what exactly? How do you define this, these, How do you define it? What all covers comes under it? That is important, right? So, again, maybe the numbers look good, but if you uh, dive deeper into it, maybe uh, there will be the interpretation will change, right? So, uh, this is something that I came across when it comes to water
0: and sanitation. Yes, sir. A lot of interesting data has come out, and you know we are pouring over it, this data. What are the policy implications, according to you, about this?
1: Yeah. So if I look at it at a macro level, right now, first thing is from this data set, right? We get an idea. What are the different kinds of deprivations? And we get this idea at uh, the state level, at the district level, right? And of course, at the larger, at the union level as well, right? So if you understand the deprivations accordingly, you can have policy measures, right? So the NFHS-5 data is helping the first thing it is doing is it is helping us understand these deprivations. Now, Another thing is, if you look at the historical data, NFHS 4 or some other data set and compare with NFHS 5. So from that, we might get an idea about where things stand, right? Whether there is an improvement or whether things have become worse. If there is an improvement, now the second thing that we can possibly do is we can zero in, right? Why there is an improvement? And again, do, uh, I mean, if things are going well, then again, do it. But if things are not going well, right? In that case, we need to identify what is the reason. Why things have become worse, right? Uh, for example, we are talking about stunting. We are talking about wasting of children, right? Uh, the yeah. numbers have become uh, worse over a period of time. So again, we have to zero in, we have to identify what is the reason, right? Uh, is it because people do not have sufficient amount of resources? Is it because people have lost jobs or their wages have, have gone down? Their financial situation has become worse. Their consumption, And as a result of it, their consumption is decreasing. Is it because of some form of social norms? Because there is, again, a regional variation here. So, again, the public policy has to be based on these kinds of things. We have to be specific, right? We need to find out what is the reason for it. The next thing is we need to have more data sets. We need to have frequent data sets so that we can continuously track where things are. And we need to have more data sets because if you have more data sets, You can now, I mean, if there is a flaw with one data set, you can identify that with the help of the other data sets. So there should be more data, more ways by which data is collected. And maybe we should have more conversations around the same. right? And that will help us identify if there is any methodological error. Just just like we saw when it comes to sanitation, right? there are different data points. When it comes to sex ratio, again, uh, different data points are there. So maybe some of these things can be rectified. Another thing is, how do we define some of these things, right? It has to be clear, right? For example, what is improved water source, what is improved uh, sanitation facilities and other things. So again, clarifications about some of these definitions needs to be focused on, right? Or else we might be just painting a rosy picture and things in reality might be completely different. Another thing, see, many of the things that we discussed, right? For example, health, sanitation, hygiene, different kinds of services that we are talking about. A large role has to be played by the state governments and by the local governments over here in providing these services so we also need to identify whether the states local governments have enough resources capacity for all these things for providing all these things and uh, because they are at the hem so the policy should be such that the states capacity is augmented let's say uh, their public finance situation right uh, they should have enough uh, resources at their disposal and they can decide how they can spend on some of these things. That said, uh, we can also possibly identify some benchmarks at the union level. Some basic baseline or benchmark can be there. That okay, all states should have at least this minimum. Yeah,
0: something that everybody should uh, aspire.
1: To. Should have, yeah, should aspire mm-hmm. to have, right? So at the union level, some of these baselines can be there. And again, uh, the different kind of resources that the union is transferring to the states, maybe on the, it can be on some of those grounds. Yeah, So I think these are some of the points that we can include or th- these are some of the points that should be taken into consideration.
0: Uh, that was interesting Satu. Thank you. I learned a lot.
1: Yeah. Uh, thanks suman Thanks to the audience for tuning in. We'll meet again in one more episode of All Things Policy. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app ivmpodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at ivmpodcasts on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website takshashila.org.in.